0: Well, Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben-Layman HaNavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilatunavah in Thornton, Colorado. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkeinur, our Father, our King, Lord, we are delighted to sit once again and to study from you, to learn of your words, to soak in your spirit, to gaze into the face of Messiah, Lord, we know that um, it is vital that we uh, foster uh, an ongoing relationship with you. We know that um, you have commanded us to uh, pray without ceasing. You've commanded us to be filled with the Spirit. You've commanded us to hide your words in our heart so that we will not sin against you. Lord, we know that it is important, um, but Lord, it's still uh, our responsibility. And so uh, when we fail to... Uh, press in and to seek your face day by day and to to learn of you and to know you and to worship you and to praise you and to lift up your name. Lord, we're the ones that lose out. Uh, You're the one who's faithful. We're the ones that are uh, so often unfaithful. So forgive us, Lord, where we fail you. Forgive us for our weaknesses. Strengthen us and help us to be a a people with resolve, a people who are uh, hungry for your word, hungry for your truth and um, a people who are uh, seeking to be bold in our witness. Uh, thank you, Lord, for bringing us together once again for one more week to study through the book of Galatians. Uh, we bless you, Father, for preserving the words, for giving Paul the uh, courage to write and the strength to do it. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for preserving the writings down through the centuries, even though we know that the adversary would seek to snuff out the truth and to bury it in the sands, So that it did not get out. But uh, thanks be to God that it did. Bless each and every uh, student who's joined me live tonight via Skype. I pray that you'll give them supernatural ears to hear and hearts to receive. Uh, Give them a capacity to uh, retain truth uh, and to carry it along to those who uh, were not able to make it tonight. Um, Strengthen us as a people uh, be with those who will be listening to this commentary after the fact. I pray that you'll also uh, lift them up where they're at, give them uh, a holy boldness to preach the name of Yeshua without uh, without fear, without compromise, to lift up the name of Jesus, the one and only true Messiah of Israel. Thank you, Father, for all of these wonderful things. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. All right, let's uh, date stamp our recording. Tonight is uh, December 17th for most of you, 2016. And um, I'm coming to you, uh, this is week, oh, it's supposed to be week 50, but it's not. It's week 49. We missed a week last week due to unforeseen circumstances, but I pray that everyone's safe and sound this week. Um, due to the, uh, proximity of, um, Hanukkah coming up right around the corner, in fact, next week, um, I've decided to go ahead and take the scheduled, the normally scheduled two-week semester break, just take it, uh, a little early, even though this is week 49. If we would have met last week, then we would have been in the semester break anyway, so, because it's the first night and last night of Hanukkah for the next two weeks, um let's just go ahead and take our 2 week semester break. So, uh just uh be aware that uh, according to your calendar, we won't meet again until really the 1st of the year, January 7th, somewhere around there. Okay? So, everyone enjoy the 2 week break. Uh spend time with your friends and family, stay safe. Uh you know, light your Hanukkah candles and uh uh play dreidel all all for the whole week. Uh you know how that goes. So, everyone have fun, and um, we'll meet together two weeks from now. Alright, for those of you in the live study with me, you should be able to see my screen. I've got Deuteronomy chapter 6 pulled up, we're just going to read the liturgy again from here. I won't wax long on the liturgy like I did last week, uh, or the week prior. Uh, Just enough to explain to those of you who are listening with me, we like to read liturgy every week. A little bit of Hebrew, a little bit of Greek, and then we'll jump into the study. Let's read again from the Deuteronomy six passage, and I, I like the relevancy of this passage as it relates to our station, our studying Galatians, because of the the prevailing um, views of Galatians and Torah obedience. Why were the Galatians uh, becoming preoccupied with with? Um, uh, things related to covenant Israel, circumcision, and works of the law, and things like that. And what in fact was the works of the law? Were they just the keepings of the Torah? Or, or was it some type of meritorious uh, um, ethnic badge that one could acquire if he weren't already born with uh, Jewish ethnicity? What exactly was the works of the law that Paul had to warn his readers away from in Galatians chapter 2, verses uh uh, Fifteen and sixteen, of which we're going to study tonight. So let's look at our liturgy, De- Deuteronomy chapter six. Um, let's let's look at the ESV first, the English. Um, uh, this is a familiar passage for most of us in the Messianic movement because um, at the heart of this is the one of the first passages out of the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is the Shem, is one of the first paragraphs of the three paragraphs of the Shema. And we're going to read uh, verses, um, I think I'll just, uh, I, I I can't resist. I'm going to read verse 1 through 9, and then I'm going to jump down and pick up the reading again at verse 20 and stop at verse 25. And uh, I just want you to hear the words of Torah and the words of Moshe, God commanding Israel to keep the commandments and uh, it should pique our curiosity as to why. Why is God uh, so um, carefully asking Israel to keep his commandments? Is it so that they can be saved? Is it so that they can be covenant members? Is it so that they can be righteous? What's going on? Read the passage. Let's find out. Verse 1, Deuteronomy 6. This, uh, now this is the commandment, the statutes. And the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Verse 3, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And let's drop down now uh, to verse 20 and, and read through the end of the passage, the end of the chapter. Verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the lord our god has commanded you right if if and let me pause and interject if any time is a good time for moshe to explain why god is asking israel to do the commandments now's a good time wouldn't you agree with the question that he just set up in verse 20 what's the meaning of the statutes and the rules You would think, according to the traditional view of the book of Galatians and the traditional view of the phrase works of the law, and how the traditional Christian view is that the Jews of the first century were keeping the Torah so that they could become saved, you would think that the answer that Moshe is going to give us in Deuteronomy 6.21 should be something like this. Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And listen to verse 24. This is what the traditional view would add. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes and to fear the Lord our God so that we can be saved, so that we can earn salvation, so that we can become covenant members so that we can uh, enter into salvation with God and enter into heaven, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. Right? Did you hear me add some extra words? Yeah, that's right. That's not what Moshe says. Let's read verse 24 again. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And then verse 25, and it will be righteousness for us. What kind of righteousness? Salvific righteousness? Forensic righteousness? They're the same thing. No, that's not what Moshe is saying at all. He's saying it will be righteousness for us, and we we must understand this verse to be behavioral righteousness. That is, the right lifestyle, the right living, doing the right thing because it is the right thing that God has told us to do. Living a a lifestyle that's righteous in God's eyes because God has... uh, has commanded us to live righteously. It's not by living this righteous lifestyle that we become uh, saved people, or that we even become the people of God. And remember, the people at this point in time are already God's people, if we could use uh, salvation as a paradigm for becoming children of God, which we know it really is. So Moses is not saying, Israel, keep these commandments, and it will make you into God's people. They were already God's people. God had already covenantally bound himself to him. To them. He had already um, elected them way back in, as far as, say, Genesis chapter 12, where uh, God made promises to Papa Abraham. So God's not telling them through Moses, keep the commandments so that you can become forensically righteous, viz., become saved. Keep the commandments so that I can let you into heaven. Keep the commandments so that you can become. Um, uh, justific- justified, as that is, uh, forensically righteous. That's not what Moses says. He says in verse 25, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he had commanded us. In other words, I-, I think it's fairly obvious to understand that what the Torah is enjoining upon Israel at this point in time is that um, God already took the people, or, well, God's going to uh, uh, explain to them. Uh, God has already uh, uh, made them a, a, a people when He took them out of the land of Egypt and uh, brought them to Sinai, and He's going to bring them into the land. Right? He's going to bring them in. He's going to bless them. And the land of of promise represents the the quintessential blessing for the people at this point in time, because they're right now they're still a, a, a straggling group of of slaves from Egypt albeit uh, they're covenant members, right? So it's not salvation that's in view. That's the point I'm really trying to stress. All right, let's go back and read um, some Hebrew. I'm not going to prolong it this time. I'll just, uh, let's see, which version do I want? Let's read the Westminster, the, the Leningrad Codex version of the Hebrew here. For those of you in the live class study, you should see the Hebrew here. I don't have the interlinear version. Instead, I'll just read the Hebrew quickly. Uh, let's start with verse 1, read down to verse 9, and then we'll jump down to verse 20 again. Uh, for those of you who can read Hebrew, we're starting right here on the left side of the... I'm sorry, on the right side there. Okay. Uh, the Hebrew says, And this is the mitzvah, hachukim, hachumishpatim, asher tziva Adonai Elocheichem, lelamed elchem la'asot ba'aretz, asher atem ov vrin l'rishtah. Verse 2, Lama'an tira et Adonai Elohecha lishmor et cholch gukotay uh, u mishpotay a shider anochi metzavech metzavcha at Uvincha uvend Bincha kol ymei chayecha undem an ya uh, yarechun yamecha verse 3 ve yisrael va shamarta la sut a Va v'asher tirbun maod kaasher dibeer adonai Eloheinu avotecha lach eretz udavash. Starting in verse four, which is familiar for most of you who uh, uh, recite the uh, set time prayers, for instance, from your Siddur. This is probably where most of you are familiar with the Shema starting verse four. Shema Sadeh el adonai Eloheinu adonai echad. Verse five. V'havte et adonai. Elohechab Holovahov Honavshab Hom Udecha, verse six. Vahu had the dream, I lea Sharanukhi Mitzavahayom, all live verse seven. Vashinantam, Livaneka, the barata bam Beshivaka, bevetak of lecta, uvlekta, vadarek of Shabaka of Kumeka, verse eight. Uktavtam, all, uh, I'm sorry, not verse eight. Uh, I'm sorry, verse, yes, verse eight. Um uh, and verse 9 now let's jump down to verse 20 starting right there for those of you who are in my live class verse 21 Levincha Avadim Chayinu Le Faro Bemitraim Voyotzi Einu Adonai Mimitsraim Bait Chazaka I'm sorry beyad Hazaka Verse twenty two Vaitan Adonai O Tod Umutin Gdulim V Raim Bemitsuraim B Faro Hol Bitola Inu verse twenty three V Uthanu Hutzim Mosham Lamaan Havi Otanu l'etet Nu et a asher nishba la avotenu. Verse twenty-four. Vaitsi venu Adonai la sot et chocha hukim la la yire Adonai et elo. I'm sorry. Et Adonai la nu lanu kol ha'yamim l'chayenu k'hayom haze And the final pasuk, the final verse is the verse that I was. Picking on where Moshe says it will be our righteousness. Tzedakah, tzedakah is the Hebrew word for righteousness, or you probably hear it pronounced as tzedakah sometimes. Uh, tzedakah is the Hebrew word for righteousness, and by context, we have to ask ourselves what kind of tzedakah is it? Forensic, meaning the the kind that saves you, the kind that brings you into the family of God, the kind that uh, using twenty first, using kind of Christian knees, the kind that that it results in salvation, becoming saved the kind that we gain from placing our trust in Yeshua is this the kind of tzedakah that Moshe, Moshe is talking about? No. I think in context the passage is talking about the other kind of righteousness, the the behavioral righteousness, what Christians would call justific- I'm sorry, what Christians would call sanctification. So it's the other side of the coin, right? One coin with two sides, one side called salvation, the other side called sanctification, one side called justification, the other side called uh uh Uh, uh, sanctification, or uh, one side called uh, forensic righteousness, the other side called behavioral righteousness. So the two go together, right? Being saved and walking saved. Becoming saved and living as a saved person. That's the point I'm trying to highlight. And I think Moshe is describing the righteousness here as the right lifestyle, not a righteousness that one would gain by placing their faith in keeping the commandments. If that were the case then Moshe really is describing an an alternate way to be saved and we know that can't be the case. So we can just use kind of Christian 2020 hindsight was when we're reading through this passage here. So verse 25 says utzadkat ki nishmor et kol I like that if you'll keep La et et call Hamitzvah, all the words of this commandment, not even mitzvot, but Hamitzvah, Hazot. tivanu. Alright, let's jump over to some Greek uh a New Testament passage, uh Apostolic Scriptures. Um let's see what version. Let's go back to the ESV for a second. And let's just read. This is the passage we've been using in Galatians because we're kind of studying through chapter 2 right now, which is kind of one of the uh, central chair passages as students of Galatians, and arguably so because Paul is leveling his rebuke to Peter because of Peter's hypocrisy. Peter had been eating with the Gentile Christians, and then when the men from black, the men from James, showed up, uh, he withdrew fellowship and Peter was playing the hypocrite, and Paul didn't like it, so Paul rebukes him in verse 15 to 16, and that's where we left off kind of in our study. Let's read just starting in... Let's read down to... Let's start in verse 11. Um, no, I'm sorry. Let's We don't have to go back that far. Let's actually start in verse 15 this time, uh, Galatians 2.15, and read uh, 16, 15 and 16. And I don't know how far we're going to get tonight in our study, so at least let's just read those two verses. Short uh, New Testament passage here. Peter's rebuke, um, Paul's rebuke to Peter, comes in the form of, of a kind of a suddenly, Paul's going to explain to Peter how we really are made justified, how we really are become, to be found righteous. And notice the, the um, contrast. We either have the works of the law, or we have uh, faith in Christ, or believing in Jesus, faith in Messiah through faith in Jesus, idea, pistios dies of Christos. So, Paul has to kind of explain to Peter once again, look, you're going to have to choose one door or the other, and there's only one true door, there's only one true way to God, there's only one path to God, and His name is Yeshua, not through this works of the law. But then it becomes the uh, burden for the Torah student to define works of the law. Let's read. English Standard Version reads, verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. So let's go back and read the Greek of that. and, And what I want you to do is listen for, in verse 16, Paul says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. And then he uses the phrase justified by faith in Christ uh, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. So he uses works of the law three times. Um, uh, Let's see, works of the law, yeah. He uses the phrase works of the law three times, which is the Greek ergonomu. And he uses justified or a cognate of it, something similar to uh, either dikayosune or dikayo, something from that word group. He uses that three times too. And the question that we're going to study tonight is what does he mean by this phrase justified by the works of the law? All right, let's jump over to the Greek. Um, my favorite Greek is the uh, SBLGNT, the, good, the Greek New Testament. Uh, let's see what we got. Mm, scroll down to verse 15. So for those of you who are in the study, I'm just going to read these two verses right here. Um, uh, the Greek says, He uh, fu kai ex ethnon hamartoloi and then starting in verse 16 right there it reads eh uh, edates dehati u dikaiutai dikaiutai that's the word uh, that Paul translated as justified earlier dikaiutai anthropas ex ergo namu in media pistios iesu christu uh this phrase right here um through the faith of Jesus Christ, I know it's a genitive, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Through faith in Jesus Christ or through faith of Jesus Christ, uh, diapistios jesu Christu, kai hemes aes uh, uh, Christon jesu epistusomen, hina dikaiothomen, dikaiothomen here is uh, justified or become justified again, a hina dikaiothomen epistios Christu, right? Justified if we were found to be justified through faith in Christ epistios Christu ex ergonamu. This phrase ergonomu is works of the law, and we saw it up here as well. Ergonamu ex is kind of from or out of having its source in ex ergonomu. Right? So this is the phrase works of law that we're gonna talk about tonight. And then he continues right here, Hati ex ergon ergonamu, there's our phrase again, ex ergonomu, works of law, ergonomuch. U theirs are justified. sarks uh, by the flesh sarks. Uh, so let's turn to our commentary and see what we can make sense of. Uh, we left off last week with um, uh, we're talking about this phrase "Works of the Law" and and essentially there are a few different ways to read "Works of the Law" and truthfully truthfully without really nitpicking or splitting hairs um they all amount to about the same thing that is legalism legalism works righteousness they really do meaning any any perspective on approaching god that circumvents christ as the only true door we know this to be true because jesus said so i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by no man comes to the father but through me right um We know that there is really only one true way of salvation, and there's only one way to be justified. I'm taking Paul's uh, Greek phrase there, um, I'm taking those words justified to mean salvifically righteous. Uh, We're not justified through works of the law, that is, to to just translate it into Christianese. We're not saved by doing the works of the law, or by by becoming obedient to, to something. We're not saved by works, we're saved by grace, we're saved by faith in Messiah, we're saved through faith in Messiah, we're saved by placing our faith in the finished work of the Messiah. So, this part about Galatians we already know. This part is, is kind of old hat, it's not something that I need to really challenge anyone on at this point in time. Um, it is, it's, it's just kind of taken as a matter of fact that Paul is combating some form of legalism in the first century that sought to seek another door... That was seeking another doorway to God or another entryway to heaven, another way to genuine and lasting covenant membership, and so Paul has to explain that, but really, the question becomes why would Paul have to bring this up? Why would he have to explain this to Peter? Peter was saved, Peter understood how to become sa how to get into heaven, but what was it about Peter's actions that was perhaps maybe conveying this idea that there was something else that mattered as much or even mattered perhaps maybe even mattered more to God than uh, faith in Christ, faith in His Son. So let's talk about it in my commentary. Um, what I say, uh, works of law refers to, because I think this is really one of the one of the central maybe uh, differing points of many commentaries to the Book of Galatians. And again, it, it's not so much that I come to a different. Uh, conclusion as to who's, who, what the proper way to approach God is. That, that's not it at all. I do agree with every Christian commentary I've ever consulted on this particular verse, uh, verse 16 primarily, and that is that uh, there's only one way to be truly be uh, uh, forensically justified, only one way to be saved, and that's through faith in Christ. I understand that, and I agree with that. Really, though, referring to what does Paul mean by works of the law? Here's where we're going to get a few differing opinions. And uh, uh, to some extent, it doesn't really matter how you describe works of the law, because either way it amounts to works righteousness, it amounts to legalism, it amounts to a, a false way to, to be saved. In other words, a, a door that leads to nowhere. So, it really, we're just trying to become a little more um, uh, accurate with the text. That's all we're trying to do. All right. Traditional Christian view says that works of the law equals keeping the Torah. So, The traditional Christian view uh, imagines that Paul's contemporaries, uh, the Jewish people of the first century, were trying to leverage Torah commandments, Torah keeping, for the sake of becoming saved. In other words, kind of the simplistic works, righteousness, merit, theology, perspective all over again. Uh, Don't try to keep the Torah to become saved, because if you try, you're going to find that it'll backfire on you. Number one, no one can keep the Torah perfectly. I'm still speaking as a traditional Christian. Number one, no one can keep the Torah perfectly, and number two, even if you even if you could keep it perfectly, which you can't, um, then uh, you're going to find that it's not going to lead to heaven because only Jesus leads to heaven. Only faith in Jesus is the doorway to salvation. So uh, every other attempt is futile. So that's, in a, in a word, that's kind of the traditional Christian perspective, and it's unfortunate that the conclusion that the tr- traditional Christian church draws after assessing the book of Galatians in the manner that in which I described, their conclusion is that because no one can keep the Torah perfectly and because it was a, a, a counterfeit way of trying to enter into heaven, bypassing Je- the faith in Jesus, then it becomes something that Paul has to remove from the people of God, something that Paul has to uh, decidedly dismantle, shut down that program of Torah obedience, and basically put it to rest, lay it to rest, uh, and teach the people, the Christians, Jews included, that you need to focus all of your energies on faith in Messiah, being filled with the Spirit, walking according to love, and essentially just close the canon, pun intended, on the Torah of Moshe. Don't worry about it anymore. It's done away with. It's it's part of an old dispensation that's being done away with. God is shutting that program down, um, et, cetera, et cetera. So it creates manifold problems to interpret the book of galatians through that lens through that hermeneutic uh viewpoint because it it, it creates theological problems with the continuity of the old testament of the tanakh uh, especially promises that god uh made with israel say ezekiel chapter 36 i promise to, to cleanse you put a new spirit within you and fill you with uh, fill you and to cause you to walk in my ways jeremiah 31 31 through say 35 promise of the new covenant where god promises to um put the write the words of of write these words on our hearts so that we can walk in the commandments things like that. So for us to teach as the christian church that god is doing away with the torah that god is dismantling the, the old testament that god is shutting down the law of moses and and laying it to rest in favor of some supposed new testament or something like that law of messiah etc cetera, etc cetera, then it creates uh like i said it creates Uh, continuity problems, it creates uh, theological problems, not least of which is the fact that Paul himself claimed to um, be loyal to Torah uh, throughout his life. Paul was a Messianic. Paul believed in Jesus. Just go ahead and read the last uh, say five or six chapters in the book of Acts where Paul's giving his defense and not more than once I'm sorry, more than once Paul gives his testimony that uh, in accordance with the traditions and uh, what what is what the jewish people believe he has remained a faithful jew um so I, I don't think that's the best way to interpret galatians let's see if we can get some, some a, a different interpretation in my commentary starting on starting around the middle of page 97 we left off last week uh we finished tim hegg's perspective on this verse and uh tim hegg's perspective on this verse verse uh, uh uh, Galatians two sixteen is essentially uh, the the perspective that I find uh, carries a, a a reasonable amount of credibility and weight um, so let 's read just the last part of tim Haig's uh viewpoint he says speaking of um the Jewish people of paul 's day they those jews of paul's day those 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 Jewish people who did not Believe that Jesus was the uh, perhaps either the the uh, what do we say the complete way to approach God or at least Jesus wasn't the the sufficient way maybe maybe they did believe in Jesus but they still believed that there was an ingredient that was missing some element of covenant membership that that the that the Jewish people of Paul's day were were uh, really really believing and placing their hopes in and it was this. Uh, Haig describes it this way, they were insisting that Gentiles become proselytes in order to enjoy the covenant fellowship which was already theirs through faith in Yeshua. So essentially, if if I understand Tim Haig correctly, reading through his own research, and kind of collapsing it all into just this, this one little uh, sentence here, essentially Tim Haig teaches that the first century Jews of Paul's day uh, both the Messianic Jew a good number of the Messianic Jews, as well as the unbelieving Jews, right, those who had not yet embraced y- Yeshua as Messiah, they were believing in what, what we might describe as a kind of a Jewish nationalism, meaning that covenant membership uh, depended on one's ethnicity or one's belonging to a people group known as Israel. Because of God's um, unique election of Israel as a people group, the people of Israel had. Um, Come to a self understanding that they and they alone were the only covenant group in in existence in the earth, and that the Gentiles essentially were outside of this uh outside of this group, and the only way to be included within the blessings of God, which included by the way salvation right salvation was contained within the blessings of the of the Torah, the blessings that were reserved exclusively for covenant members in order to be included. The, the Jewish people had imagined that covenant membership was essentially a Jewish only feature, and therefore those who were not born with Jewish identity or Jewish ethnicity or born into the family clan of Israel you know via the, the, the just the natural lineage, they had to cross some boundary from Gentile into Jew and to, to get into the group. it was a members' only group. Jewish-only group, members-only group, the Torah was for members only, Holy Spirit was only for members, God was exclusively the possession of the Jewish people, and covenant membership was exclusively a Jewish thing, a Jewish concept. Gentiles had to convert, become legally recognized Jews before they could be recognized as covenant members, and then they were given Torah, and then they could anticipate, uh, as proselytes, they could then anticipate a place in the Olam Haba, the age to come. Makes sense? So that's essentially how Tim Hague, uh writes. That's essentially how he teaches. And I think Tim Higg gets a lot of his theology from uh, James D.G. Dunn, who we're going to look at here in a moment, as well as from uh, other uh, well-meaning Christian writers who've done a little bit of homework onto this topic, E.P. Sanders, and things like that. So let's peek into uh, James D.G. Dunn's notes and see how uh, Dunn articulates this works of the law issue in Galatians. Starting in the middle of page 97. Yep. Alright. We read in my commentary, likewise James D.G. Dunn's comments on these two verses is quite telling, speaking of uh, Galatians 2.15-16. So I will quote him at length here so as to provide a different perspective for Bible students to consider. And then um, I I read through that last week, so I'm not going to read through that again. I just wanted to kind of back up and get a running start so you know that we're in Dunn's comments. Where we left off last week was at the top of page 98, where um, Dunn just got through describing uh, this phrase righteousness, righteousness, where Dunn believes that what Paul is really um, trying to convey when he uses this term righteousness, right? Remember the Greek was something like dikaiosune, or it's it's borrowed from the dikaios verb group in the Greek the guy सिने what what Dunn thinks is going on and this view kind of carries over into other christian writers such as uh, Mark Nanus. and um I'm sorry Mark Nanus is not a christian writer if i understand i think he's just a traditional jewish writer but he writes commentaries on the new testament uh but also particularly if you ever get a chance to look up uh NT Wright bishop Wright's uh, own commentaries on this topic of justification are quite extensive. So let's listen to Dunn. Two clarificatory corollaries immediately follow after this idea of being justified. Okay, listen to how Dunn describes justification. And I think he's got some merit. I think he's got some uh, some credibility to, the, to what he's proposing. Uh, Dunn writes quote, one, in talking of being justified here, Paul is not thinking of a distinctively initiatory act of God, right? What we might use in Christian circles, uh, describe in Christian circles as uh, salvation. Rather, um, uh, God's justification, Dunn goes on to say, God's justification is not his act in first making his covenant with Israel or in initially accepting someone into the covenant people. That's all salvation language. Rather, God's justification is God's acknowledgement that someone is in the covenant, whether that is an initial acknowledgement or a repeated action of God, viz. God's saving acts, or God's final vindication of his people. Did you catch that? Right? Uh, So, Dunn goes on to say, in Galatians 2.16, we're not surprised when the second reference to being justified has a future implication. Right. Remember, we read Paul uses this phrase "justified" three different times, and we found out from the Greek that one of those is one of those verbs is in the future. Ones in the uh, present. I think it's kind of like present, present, future, uh, something like that. If we were to go back and look at it here, um, we we believe we have believed in Christ Jesus in order that we might be justified. Notice the future implication. In other words, it seems like Paul knows that justification is not only this one-time act, but yet Paul also knows that justification is both an ongoing action that God recognizes as well as a final declaration that God can make uh, as he he basically declares a person righteous in his sight or justified in his sight. So there's kind of this three parts to it as I see it. There's justified at the beginning, there's justified in the middle, and there's justified at the end of days, at the end when God actually uh, uh, judges or 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 rewards us. There's kind of a justification going on there too. So Dunn goes on to say, uh, we've got this future implication and the third reference is in the future tense as well. By works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Even in the English, we can hear it there. Be justified and be justified are, are, uh, 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 grammatically speaking, they are future references. And again, if we were to go back and look at the Greek, uh, we could see that. Dunn goes on to say, we might mention also Galatians 5.5 where Paul speaks of, quote, awaiting the hope of righteousness, end quote. Notice the future aspect of Paul's uh, statement there, awaiting. We as believers are, in Galatians 5, 5, awaiting the hope of righteousness. And that word righteousness in, in from Galatians 5, 5 is, once again, this Greek phrase justified, or, I'm um, sorry, this Greek phrase uh, uh, something From the dikaya'o word group, dikayusune or uh, dikayutesetai or something like that. So the point that that, that Dunn is bringing up here I think is very striking. As he concludes, to be justified in Paul cannot therefore be treated simply as an entry or initiation formula. In other words, when Paul speaks of justification, it's not fair to simply... Uh, collapse all of the meaning of the word justification into what Christians today would call the initiatory salvation act when one uh, first puts their trust in Yeshua and becomes a covenant member becomes forensically justified becomes saved correct? understand what I'm saying here? justification carries uh, uh, it's, it's far dyna- far more dynamic than just that simple uh, viewpoint uh, where we first become saved Uh, Dunn goes on to say, nor is it possible to draw a clear line of distinction between Paul's usage and the typically Jewish covenantal usage. Uh, And we're going to talk about this this typical Jewish covenantal usage. Dunn goes on to say, already we may observe Paul appears a good deal less idiosyncratic and arbitrary than Sanders, speaking of E.P. Sanders, and Sanders alleges... All right. Let's keep reading. The second corollary that Dunn mentions that I quote in my commentary is this: number two, perhaps even more striking is the fact, which also begins to merge, that at this point in Paul, is wholly at one. I'm sorry. At this point, Paul is wholly at one with his fellow Jews, right? His Jewish contemporaries, even the traditional Jews of Paul's day, the unbelieving ones. Listen to this: Paul is wholly at one with his fellow Jews in asserting that justification is by faith. I have to pause and let that sink in for a moment. Dunn essentially believes, as do I, and as does uh, uh, Haig, if I understand his writings correctly, Dunn essentially believes that Paul was in agreement with the fact that the Jewish people of Paul's day did not believe that justification was earned by works, you're saying. But Ariel, what about works of law? Didn't the Jewish people in Paul's day think that they could earn their way to heaven, earn their way into covenant member- membership by the works of law? Yes, they did. But the the, the, the uh, uh the key is in in defining this phrase, works of the law. All right. So let's just keep reading. As I give you that little teaser, um, that is to say, Dunn says, integral to the idea of the covenant itself and of God's continued action to maintain it, is the profound recognition of God's initiative and grace in first establishing and then maintaining the covenant. Notice that the Jewish people started with God. It was God's election. God took the first step. It was God's initiative and God's grace. That's right. I believe that the Jewish people of the first century actually understood that God's election was grace, and that they were made into God's covenant people, not lasting covenant membership, but limited covenant membership, earthly if you want to call it that way. Um, They were actually made God's covenant people because God chose to make them that way. God brought them into their covenant status. God elected them. God chose them. It was God's grace and God's grace alone. They could not have earned that position as God's natural covenant members get my point so far all right i think james dunn agrees with that and i think uh that's really how paul would agree with his own jewish contemporaries i do believe that that him tim haig also agrees with that position and i think that's a better way to start from a better way to to start to launch from as we try to um decipher this cryptic phrase ergo namu in the greek works of the law in the english i think it's better to understand that first and foremost, the Jewish people of Paul's day didn't think that they were earning their covenant membership by doing something. In fact, they first believed that they were graciously elected. Albeit, albeit understand this, it is really a misunderstanding of grace to think that they are automatically saved. Right? So it's, it's their incorrect conclusion, the Jewish people of Paul's day, it's their incorrect conclusion based on the fact that God did elect them. Uh, in other words, because God did elect them, which is true, the Jewish people then went on to improperly conclude that they were automatically saved. In other words, because they were automatically natural covenant members, they also thought that they were automatically lasting covenant members as well. They were kind of confusing the two different types of covenant membership, or, to go back to Deuteronomy 6.25 again, they were misunderstanding or kind of blurring the lines between the two types of covenant, righteousness. Remember, Moshe says it will be our righteousness. What kind of righteousness? Behavioral. Not forensic. There is a difference between the two. So, although they are two sides in one coin. Alright, let's keep reading. I hope I'm not losing anyone. I hope this is really kind of sinking in after listening to it for 49 weeks, right? Let's keep reading. Done. Uh, reading my commentary. We're right uh, right here. For those of you who are in my live study, I just highlighted the word justification there justification by faith it would appear is not a distinctively christian teaching if we understand the word justification there to mean behaviorally justified or um i'm sorry yes behaviorally justified or even this concept of Justification as a total package where a person is graciously elected by God, and if we take the word elect there and swap it out for the word justified, right? to use the Greek dikaiusune or to use the Hebrew uh, tzedakah. Either way, the first century idea of becoming a covenant member appears to have um, been rooted in this idea of God's gracious election first, and, and couched in that language, which I believe is accurate, couched in that language, it's really God's uh, choice to bring people who were not covenant members into the covenant uh, by His grace and by His own choice, by His election, by His love for the people group, by the promises that He made to the Avot, uh, to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See my point? In other words, I think that it's true that God graciously elected Israel. And I think it's true that Israel was aware of that fact. They knew that they were the elect. They knew that they were a covenant people of God. And because of that, they knew that they didn't have to earn their way into the covenant. So I think it's wrong for the Christian church to label that uh, charge against 1st century by Israel by thinking by saying that the 1st century Jews were trying to work their way into covenant membership. I don't think that was that at all. I think the Jewish people were actually knew that they were brought in by grace, Although there's this misunderstanding again, right? What's our responsibility now that we are covenant members? And exactly what does covenant membership entail? Does it mean we're lasting covenant members? Does it mean we have a place in the world to come? The olam haba? In other words, heaven? Does it mean we get in because we're natural covenant members? Let's keep reading. Justification by faith, <clears throat> it would appear, is not a distinctively Christian teaching. Paul's appeal here is not to Christians who happen also to be Jews... Rather, his appeal is to Jews whose Christian faith is but an extension of their Jewish faith in a graciously electing and sustaining God. We must return to this point shortly, but for the moment, Dunn says, we may simply note that to ignore this fundamental feature of Israel's understanding of its covenant of its covenant status is to put in jeopardy the possibility of a properly historical exegesis of the book of Galatians. And I can't really... Excuse me. <clears throat> I can't stress this point more myself. I want to read that sentence one more time for those of you who are listening to my commentary who come from the traditional Christian perspective that Israel was trying to earn their way into God's covenant in the first century. I don't think that that's the best way to give the book of Galatians its historical uh socio-religious background. In other words, it's not it's not really the uh, the, the strongest hermeneutic to start from. I think uh um uh, Dunn has has hit the nail on the head here uh, with this particular sentence. Let me read it again for you. Uh, for the moment, we may simply note that to ignore this fundamental feature of Israel's understanding of its covenant status is to put in jeopardy the possibility of a properly historical exegesis. Okay, far worse, to start our exegesis, and what Dunn's about to do now is he's going to... He's going to expose the weakness of the traditional Christian perspective here. So listen up. To start our exegesis of the book of Galatians, from the Reformation presupposition that Paul was attacking the idea of earning God's acquittal, the idea of meritorious works, is to set the whole exegetical endeavor off on the wrong track. See my point? If Paul was not an idiosyncratic Jew... Neither was he a straightforward prototype of Luther, all right. So, uh, Dunn challenges your traditional Christian perspective that the Jewish people were trying to earn their way into heaven by doing the Torah, by keeping the commandments, and of course the Christian church has already pointed out the logical fallacy of trying to keep the commandments of God uh, primarily because it is number one, not the correct doorway to God, but number which is a theological. Uh, argument, right? But number two, because of the logical improbability and impossibility that the Christian church teaches of keeping all of the commandments perfectly. In other words, this kind of um, uh, straw man argument where they uh, assume that uh, the Jewish people were thinking they should keep it perfectly in order to become saved. And because we know that no one can keep the Torah perfectly, because we know that all men are uh, sinners, that all men are uh, flawed, then no one can keep the Torah perfectly. Therefore, it is an impossible task to try and keep it perfectly, therefore no one can keep the Torah to become saved. And that kind of becomes this this weird kind of circular line of reasoning that we read about in many Christian commentaries, which I, I just can't follow. So, I think Dunn's proposal uh, that we start from a better, uh, an, ex- an exegetical perspective that, that goes a little farther back than Reformation, Paul, uh, the, the kind that we read about in your traditional Christian commentaries. If we go back a little further and dig uh, a little deeper, uh, starting with, say, um, maybe with the rabbinic writings that survived the, the destruction of the temple. Let's go back into the Mishnah, into the Talmud, and let's see if we can uncover some hints at, at how uh, Israel was uh, 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 understanding their own covenant membership. I think we get a better perspective, and that's really uh, what Dunn is trying to uh, propose to us here. So let's let's see if we can read just a little bit more. Give me a moment here. Um, and then we'll probably stop near the top of page 99 stop right at verse 219 Uh, uh, that's where we'll stop reading tonight Uh, there's one final um, uh, paragraph here that Dunn mentions Uh, speaking of works of the law what then is Paul attacking when he dismisses the idea of being justified quote by works of law end quote now listen up very carefully, because it's going to sound almost like Dunn is is uh, in agreement with the traditional Christian perspective that works of the law is a meritorious earning of salvation by doing the commandments. But but actually that's not it at all. I think <clears throat> Dunn, like Haig, like me, we all believe, uh, as do other well-meaning authors, uh, but I just mentioned those three off the top of my head, me and Hague and Dunn, uh, we all believe that uh, works of law is a suggestion, is a phrase, kind of code word for um, uh, this coin with two sides that I keep describing in my commentary. Uh, this um, covenant membership that uh, kind of began for a Jew at birth and began for a Gentile at the moment of his conversion, when it, when his proselyte ceremony was completed. And so that's the first side of covenant membership, what we might call the natural entry point into covenant membership. But the, um, the, the the covenant member then uh, enjoined himself to the Torah. He he bound himself to covenant. I'm sorry. He bound himself to Torah obedience because he, he felt that it was his responsibility as a covenant member to maintain his position and loyalty to God by keeping the commandments, demonstrating his loyalty, as it were, by keeping God's commandments and also uh, keeping himself away from uh, idolatry. Right, Lest he be uh, suffer the penalty of caret being cut off, being cut out of, cut off from covenant membership, i. e um, being put out of the, the, the people group of God. so it's this two sides to his membership that he had in view. One side was the sign that it, the, the, his me- ethnicity and the other side was his, is what he described as maintenance of Torah. So listen to Dunn, how Dunn describes this. What does Paul mean by works of law justified by works of law? Dunn says, as he does, again, no less than three times in this one verse, right? We read that that Paul says works of the law three times, justified three times, right? Paul's really hammering this point home. What does he mean? What does he mean? Right, not by works of law, not by works of law, not by works of law. Dunn goes on to say, listen up, let me scroll down just a bit here. All right, Dunn goes on to say, the answer which suggests itself from what has already been said is that Paul was thinking of covenant works, works related to the covenant, works done in obedience to the law of the covenant. Now, it sounds like Dunn's describing uh, the traditional merit theology, but keep, keep listening. This is both confirmed and clarified by both the immediate and the broader contexts the conclusion follows very strongly that when Paul denied the possibility of being justified by works of the law, it is precisely this basic Jewish self-understanding which Paul is attacking. The idea that God's acknowledgement of covenant status is bound up with, even dependent upon, observance of these particular regulations. The idea that God's verdict of acquittal hangs to any extent on the individuals having declared as membership of the covenant people by embracing these distinctively Jewish rights. End quote. And let's see where I lifted all of that information from Dunn. Scroll down in my commentary to footnote number 80, you'll see that I pulled that from James D.G. Dunn's The New Perspective on Paul, revised edition, uh, Erdman's Publishing Company, Grand Rapids, Michigan, 2008, from section 2. So, in closing for tonight's section, so we can get poised uh, in two weeks to start with chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law. Right? That sounds like it it's really Paul's spelling the end of Torah obedience for those of us who are in the Messianic movement. In conclusion, cl- kind of just to bring my plane to an, a landing, what we talked about tonight was something that I am strongly a proponent of, and that is rethinking the way we... We as Christians have traditionally understood uh, the legalism of the first century Jews, and that is the the prevailing uh, stereotype has the Jews of the first century legalistically, uh, meritoriously hoping that their um, Torah observance, right their Sabbath keeping, their kosher, their their walking in the festivals, etc., etc. Their keeping of Torah will somehow earn their way into God's eyes uh, in a salvific way. They'll become saved if they keep Torah and and given that that easily dis easily dismantable uh straw man that the christian church i believe has has uh, constructed, given that caricature that that kind of stereotype that I believe is has been uh kind of uh, fostered by uh, ever since the, the the days of the Reformation and perhaps even earlier, but strongly seen within Luther's writings and Calvin's writings and things like that um ever since those days the Christian church can easily say, well, no one can keep the law to become saved. And because no one can keep the law to become saved, and because one can only uh, place our faith in Jesus to become saved, it becomes um, evident that there's no really no place for the Torah in the life of a believer, because it can't save you. Therefore, it becomes a worthless endeavor to try and keep Torah, because one can't be saved if one keeps it. Besides, no one can keep it perfectly. That's their position. And this particular... Uh, theology or this particular hermeneutic uh, viewpoint on the book of Galatians easily dismisses uh, Torah obedience in the life of a believer, and it becomes a point of um, disagreement between traditional Christian churches who who believe in faith that that faith in Jesus is central to understanding the book of Galatians, as well as uh, a point of disagreement between the traditional Torah communities that many Messianics uh, belong to who believe that Torah obedience is in fact relevant for us as Jews and Gentiles and Messiah. Yet we Torah, uh, Torah move uh, the Torah movement members, we Messianics, we actually do affirm uh, our faith in Yeshua when it comes to salvation. So we've got this strange kind of disagreement going on. It's an in-house debate. It's not like we Messianics believe that if we keep Torah we're going to become saved. That's not it at all. I I don't know of any Messianic who thinks that his Torah obedience is going to save him. If he does, then God help him, right? He's he's walking in gross error. Rather, it's that we Messianics do believe that we're saved by faith in Jesus, just like the Christians do. But we also believe that once we become saved, Torah obedience becomes our mandate. It becomes our responsibility. It becomes our covenant responsibility as covenant members. It becomes the Torah that's written on our hearts, That, like Jeremiah 31, 31 talks about it. Like the book of Hebrews quotes in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10 with the longest quote from the, the longest single quote from the Tanakh that you're going to find anywhere in the Apostolic Scriptures. The quote from Jeremiah 31 about the New Covenant being written and the Torah being written on our heart. We Messianics firmly believe that we, we find our faith in Jesus. We're not keeping the Torah to become saved. We keep the Torah because we're saved. Amen? And so it behooves us to go back to the book of Galatians, I think, and to kind of start once again afresh and look at this phrase, works of the law. Did it mean keeping the law to become saved, or did it mean something else? I think it means something else. I think it meant becoming a Jew and then keeping the Torah to maintain your covenant membership that you gained by becoming a Jew. That is, if you were a Gentile. right? I think that's what the phrase works of the law means. It has it has all of that in view. In other words, uh, to use my coin with two sides example in closing, and to to merge it with this idea of, of dikaiosune that Paul uses in the book of Galatians that we just looked at in the Greek deutero Usune describes righteousness justification describes both the beginning of our covenant membership which is uh for the first century perspective would have been um Jewish by birth or Jewish by conversion and then it also describes uh Usune de- de- uh also describes the ongoing lifestyle of an individual as he seeks to walk out his covenant membership uh in other words it's the other side of the coin um that Paul would say we're not we are not really brought into covenant membership through our ethnicity, and we don't really maintain our covenant membership by our own power either we don't maintain covenant membership by keeping the Torah we don't get into covenant membership by our Jewish ethnicity, and we don't maintain our covenant membership by our loyalty to Torah. rather both of those endeavors are are things that God himself uh um things that God himself uh, uh, takes care of, so to say, God brings us into genuine covenant membership by faith in Messiah, and God maintains our position uh, as we uh, cling uh, cling to Messiah by faith as well. In other words, we're brought in by faith and we stay in by faith. If we, if we use genuine covenant membership, genuine dikaiosune, genuine justification view, so I think it, it's 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 really a better way to view Galatians if we start. Um, kind of looking at it through those lenses. And I know it's kind of complicated to describe it that way, but nevertheless, I think it goes a long way to help explain to the Christian church one of the reasons why we Messianics continue to embrace the Torah of Moshe is because we don't believe that Torah obedience leverages uh, salvation. We don't believe that Torah obedience brings us into the covenant membership, and we also don't believe that Torah obedience keeps us in as as covenant members. We don't believe that at all. We believe that Torah obedience is our covenant responsibility uh, because it is the righteousness that Moshe described in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse twenty-five, and he goes on to also Paul goes on to quote this righteousness in Romans chapter ten, verse. Uh, I think it's Romans 10, verse 5. Let me just leave off with that final verse. Let me just pull it up for you real quick. Uh, Romans 10. And I want to say verse... Let me pull up the English for us. Romans uh, five, uh, 10, 5, yeah. You remember, with 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 Deuteronomy 6.25 in view, where, where Moshe described the righteousness, for it will be our righteousness. Remember the Hebrew word tzedakah. It will be a righteousness if we do all these words of the commandment. And remember how I, how I believe that the best way to understand that, that uh, pasuk, that verse, is to understand the word righteousness there as a behavioral righteousness? Well then, with that in view, look at Romans 10, verse 5, where um, Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. What righteousness is Moshe writing about that Paul is quoting in Romans 10.5? I believe it's the very same righteousness we just read about in Deuteronomy 6.25. It's the behavioral righteousness that Moshe writes about that's based on the law. It's the behavior righteousness that the person who does the commandments, right, behaves righteously, lives righteously, shall live by them. He shall live his life by them. He shall have life by them. He shall have life in this world by them. I think that's a, 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 a that in other words, I think that Romans 10:5 is essentially a kind of a mini commentary on the uh, the uh, Deuteronomy 625 verse that we just read in my liturgy tonight. so and why am I bringing all of this up in our study on the book of Galatians? Because it helps we messianics explain to our Christian friends and family members why we're keeping the Torah, right? Because Moshe says it'll be our righteousness. And what kind of righteousness is that? It's our behavioral righteousness. It's our behavioral righteousness. It is the righteous behavior that God expects of us as covenant members. And it's the righteousness that's based on the law. And it's the righteousness that expects the covenant member to actually do the commandments and live by them. Right? It's Leviticus 18.5 all over again. That the man who does these things shall live by them. Which Paul, of course, quotes here. uh, Uh... uh, right here, I think that's what he's quoting from in Romans 10.5. Uh, uh, he's actually alluding to Leviticus 18.5 all over again. So let's uh, let's close for tonight. I gave you a lot to chew on. Um, uh, enjoy the break for the next two weeks. We'll meet again uh, at the beginning of the year. I want to say um, January 7th or somewhere around then. Just Just watch your email for the notices, okay? Let's close in prayer. And for those of you who are in the live study, we'll stick around for about another 10 or 15 minutes or so. And uh, uh, have some fun in the chat, okay? Abba, we bless your name and we thank you for the opportunity to study your words afresh. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that it is because of your great and intense love for us that you have brought us into a relationship with you. We know that it's not anything that we could have done in and of ourselves. We know rather, rather, Lord, that uh, because you set your love on the forefathers... Uh, You chose them above all the peoples of the earth. You made promises to them, and you have been faithful to, to execute those promises. You brought them out of Egypt. You brought them to the foot of Sinai. You gave them your words of Torah, and you brought them into the promised land, a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. And we thank you, Lord, that you are continuing to demonstrate your love for us By sending your son, you sent your son Messiah into our hearts, into our communities, into our families, and because of his spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy God. We thank you, Lord, that because of your great love for us, that we know that we are your people and that we have a responsibility to walk in your ways and to showcase your covenant truths to the peoples around us, to demonstrate that you are the one true God and that your ways are righteous and that there's no god like you and that there's no law like this righteous law. Lord, we intend to live Deuteronomy chapter 4 uh seriously, we intend to take it seriously. So that the surrounding people groups will look at us and say, "Wow, what people group has what people group is there like this people who has the uh, a god so close to them as the Lord our God and whose ways are as righteous as the Lord our God's ways are righteous." Thank you, Lord that this is our mandate. Taking the name of our God to the people who don't yet know. Give us a holy boldness as we declare the truth that Jesus is Lord and that he is the Messiah of both Israel and of the world. Thank you, Lord, that you have raised us up and that you're calling us out out of darkness into your marvelous light and that you're filling us with your spirit so that we can make a difference in this very dark and evil generation. Bless you for all of the the rich uh, nuggets that we were able to mine from the book of Galatians. Give us a break, give us a rest uh, during this two-week break. Bring us back refreshed. Help us to have a happy Hanukkah. Help us to enjoy uh, this traditional holiday with all of the festivities and lights and the, uh, uh, the the candles. And help us to press in and to know you more. Thank you for all these things. We'll be careful to give you the praise of Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him,